Hey everyone. All right, so as you guys probably know from the flyer that you guys got sent from Kara, we're trying to start a new education process. So coordinate some of these podcast type lectures, do procedure labs, and then finally like a simulation patient each month. Um, and then obviously you're willing to go back and listen to any of the previous lectures that, that I've done before about whatever the topic of the month is, if you can stomach any more of my rambling for the month. Um, that being said, January shall be the month of kind of airway breathing pulmonology stuff in general. Now, I would love to just talk to you guys about respiratory distress in general, but that's kind of a broad topic and would probably take me like three months to adequately cover. So instead, I'm going to talk about specific causes of respiratory distress. But remember, our initial resuscitation of anybody that comes in with respiratory distress is going to start the same until we kind of start to narrow down our differential diagnosis. And remember, when resuscitating a, a patient appropriately is contingent upon having a good differential diagnosis, right? And the evaluation and resuscitation kind of happen in tandem, and then we modify our diagnosis based on the results that we get back, okay? So when we do this from now on, we're going to kind of talk about a patient presentation, the differential diagnosis that comes with that presentation, um, the evaluation, the treatment and resuscitation, which like I said, is probably happening in tandem. And then finally, we'll talk about patient disposition, okay? So that being said, patient presentation. A 67-year-old man's brought in by ambulance to the emergency department complaining of respiratory distress. On EMS arrival, he was found to be tachypnic, tachycardic with a heart rate in the 140s that EMS thought was pretty irregular, and was hypoxic with initial O2 sats on room air of 82%. His wife told EMS that he's on nighttime oxygen to, quote, keep his oxygen levels up, but can't really provide any other specific medical issues for the patient. Um, they noted that he had diffuse wheezing in all lungs field. They gave him an albuterol treatment prior to arrival, and he arrives to us with a non-rebreather on and sats of 98%. So what are our first priorities? Well, obviously the answer is ABCs. So do we think this gentleman's airway is intact? Well, let's say he's speaking in two to three word sentences, doesn't have obvious strider, um, no obvious upper airway obstruction is noted. Okay, so I'll just tell you that his airway to us looks to be intact. What about his breathing? Well, this is one I want to go ahead and say is probably not so good, right? He's tachypnic with three-word dyspnea, and he was hypoxic and is requiring large amounts of oxygen, right? He's on an on rebreather. He's got good sats. We probably have at least a few minutes to continue down the resuscitation pathway before we have to actively take control of his breathing, but it's really something that we should be cycling back on constantly, okay? From a circulatory standpoint, He's diaphoretic. He's somewhat clammy. He's got a systolic blood pressure of approximately 160-ish. All right. So what are we going to do first? Two large bore IVs and a cardiac monitor, right? Call for RT. The more hands on deck, the better. And let's examine our patient because that's actually some, somewhat helpful with the chief complaint of respiratory distress, right? When you listen to his lungs, there's not much going on, right? You can hear some scattered, faint wheezing on both sides, but he's not really moving a ton of air. He's leaning forward. He's using all of his accessory muscles, and he's clearly in respiratory distress, right? Despite the non-rebreather. All right. So what's on our differential? So with wheezing, which is kind of what we're talking about in this presentation, the first and easiest thing to think is the patient's got COPD or asthma, right? A reactive airway disease of some sort. And the vast majority of the time, you're going to be right about that. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. However, 
there are at least four other emergent causes of respiratory distress that can cause wheezing, and some of which the treatment for reactive airway disease, so the treatment for COPD, is actually harmful. So we want to at least consider these before we kind of anchor on the diagnosis of COPD or asthma. Now, I'm not going to talk about the treatment or the resuscitation of these conditions specifically, but we need to target our evaluation to at least consider and rule out these alternative diagnoses, right? So what else wheezes? Congestive heart failure, right? Now, we typically think of congestive heart failure as people presenting with like ronchi or crackles and they just sound wet, but some people wheeze, right? And to make matters a lot more fun, a lot of patients with COPD in particular also have heart failure as they tend to not be the healthiest of all people. Um, this is uh, this is the type of patient where large amounts of albuterol can actually make them worse, right? Because it increases cardiac demand in an already struggling heart. So we need to consider and look for this possibility. What else? Pulmonary embolism, right? Portions of lungs that aren't oxygenating tend to shut down and they shunt blood to other places. Sometimes this causes wheezing in those areas that aren't getting oxygenation. And you can also get pulmonary infarcts and some pulmonary hemorrhage that can increase that wheeze. Um, pneumothorax, right? So this is unlikely to be bilateral wheezing. It's more likely to be unilateral, right? The side that is, that is down. Um, you can sometimes hear a little bit of wheezing through this lung. And the last thing to consider is like an aspirated foreign body. Again, this is more likely to be unilateral because the, if the foreign body is like lodged above the carina, they're going to start to have more upper airway type noises like strider and signs of airway obstruction and those kinds of things. But at least consider this if someone comes in wheezing, particularly if they're wheezing more on one side than the other. All right. So we have at least a general differential diagnosis. And I will tell you the evaluation and treatment are things that generally happen in tandem, right? So when we go to place our two large, uh, large bore IVs and we draw labs that we're going to want and any major treatment needs to be started. And then we adjust these as the evaluation continues, right? So we aren't operating in a completely linear fashion, although I'm going to talk about it in a linear fashion. In general, what type of evaluation do we want to start with this patient? from like a lab imaging standpoint. Well, to be completely honest with reactive airway disease, it, if we're certain that's what this is, so let's switch the paradigm to a 22 year old female who has known asthma, it's August during high smoke season, and she tells you she just ran out of her albuterol, right? We don't really need much of anything. Labs and imaging aren't helpful, right? They don't change the management of that patient. But with this current patient presentation, right? So the 67 year old guy that's got multiple medical comorbidities, a workup's probably going to matter, right? A rainbow of labs is probably a good thing, right? CBC, CMP, coags, kind of depending on other medical problems. Most of us will probably add cardiac labs of some sort, at least a troponin, um, plus or minus D dimers, again, depending on other medical problems or how typical of a presentation this person has. Um, and I would say a lot of us will order blood gases in these patients as well with consistently low SATs or any change in mental status, right? Blood gases aren't routinely indicated for just wheezing in general, um, but if they start to have true respiratory distress, I do think they are helpful. And if there's any change in me mental status, then they really are helpful. Um, they're more helpful early in the resuscitation, right? Um, and it's really the only time I'm personally picky about an ABG versus a VBG. Um, these become less useful if they're drawn once the patient is like feeling better. So ask for RT early to help with this, right? This is one of the reasons why having RT on board early is a good thing. Um, and a chest x-ray. 
Potentially, right? I will say the ABG and the chest x-ray for me in most cases is the most helpful thing that's going to quickly change my management. So I like to have these things done as quickly as possible. I also think getting an EKG early is helpful, not in all patients, but in this one specifically, right? So patients that have an irregular heartbeat or persistently tachycardic, an EKG can be important, right? Maybe there's a component of AFib that's leading to heart failure that's either causing or contributing to the wheezing. Patients with COPD are also prone to other heart rhythms that, that may benefit from early treatment, right? So the one I'm specifically thinking of is called MAT or multifocal atrial tachycardia, right? So sending labs besides chest x-rays and an EKGs is probably going to be warranted in most of these patients, right? Adding cultures if there's infectious symptoms. And let's face it, in this day and age, they're all going to get COVID tested of some sort, whether that's a rapid COVID test or an RVP. That was not routinely indicated for wheezing until two years ago, right? So this is this is kind of the overarching workup for a patient that presents in respiratory distress, specifically respiratory distress with wheezing, okay? All right, let's go back to our hypoxic tachycardic patients. We're getting them lined and labbed, and at the same time, we need to start resuscitation and treatment. So we were a little on the fence about his breathing when he got here, right? EMS found a hypoxic patient who's still in respiratory distress despite an improvement in oxygenation, right? ABG in this case is very helpful. Even if SATs are good, and they're probably a little too good for a patient with COPD, we want to know how the patient is ventilating, right? So that's where a blood gas can also help us. Um, if the patient's ventilating, right, so they have a PCO2 around 40 or at their baseline, which in some COPDers is a little bit higher than normal, um, we want to target SATs of 88 to 93%. And in general, with patients with COPD, we always want to target SATs of 88 to 93%. Um, if you push the oxygen SATs much higher than this, patients with COPD tend to breathe less, right? They think they have too much oxygen and they get progressively more hypercapnic, which is bad if they're already somewhat hypercapnic. So, drop back on the non-rebreather, right? Switch to a nasal cannula, something like that to drop their SATs down to that 90-ish range. Um, if the patient isn't ventilating, so we get a blood gas and their PCO2 is significantly elevated, then that's the patient we want to start to consider positive pressure ventilation, right? So BiPAP. Um, and then we can titrate the oxygen on that to get SATs where we want them. So again, in that 88 to 93% range. This is why we need RT down there as soon as possible, right? They are the keepers of the ventilation equipment, right? So we need them there. Um, it's unusual and almost unheard of now that we intubate reactive airway, these reactive airway disease without at least an attempt at positive pressure ventilation, right? It's been proven that positive pressure ventilation helps a ton when it comes to COPD and asthma and can prevent intubation in a lot of patients. Um, COPDers are in general very hard to get off a ventilator and they're kind of a little bit more challenging to manage on the ventilator. So if we can not put them in that situation, that's way better for them. Um, so the exception to this is if the patient comes in significantly altered from their hypercapnia to a point where positive pressure ventilation is contraindicated, right? So they're not awake enough to handle the BiPAP mask. Those are the people that we would, we would jump right to intubation. The next thing we need to start is a bronchodilator, right? This will help both with oxygenation and with ventilation. So if RT is not immediately available, we do not wait to start this treatment, right? You can all start albuterol and ipratropium and it should not be delayed because we're waiting for RT to arrive. Okay, 
three doses of ipratropram is probably as much as you're going to get any help from. But albuterol, you can run as a continuous until they can't take anymore and their heart like explodes from having beta agonists, right? <laughs> the next thing to consider in all these patients uh, with asthma or COPD is steroids. This can be IV or oral. It doesn't really matter and they're really not any different. However, um, when people aren't breathing well, giving oral medications is usually not what we do just because it's hard for them to take oral medications. So if we're going to put them potentially on BiPAP or they're altered, we obviously never give them oral medications. Most of us just defer to IV steroids because it's just a little bit easier, right? So methylprednisolone is probably the most common that we give for COPD. Dexamethasone for asthma, particularly in kids, tends to be most people's go-to, or we give oral prednisone. It's really dealer's choice. They all do essentially the exact same thing. They're used to reduce inflammation in the lungs, and they're not an immediate fix, right? They take several hours to even start working, which means the earlier we can get them on board, the better. All right, magnesium is the next treatment to consider. There's good data that magnesium is very effective in asthmatics and should be given with moderate to severe exacerbations. Uh, the data is less convincing in COPD, right? It causes bronchial smooth muscle relaxation and theoretically will allow more air passage through the bronchioles. Um, I will say this is where an EKG and COPD is somewhat handy, right? So if a patient is tachycardic with an irregular rhythm, I want to check for this MAT that I was talking about. Magnesium is a treatment for MAT, right? Along with treating the thing that causes the MAT, which is the COPD is exacerbation, right? So you want to give them oxygen and potentially magnesium. The way I see it is magnesium may not help, but it's not going to hurt the patient. So if the presentation is pretty severe, I give it a go and see if it helps some. Um, the final treatment to consider in COPD, not in asthmatics, but in COPD, is antibiotics. Now, if there's an infiltrate on chest x-ray or infectious symptoms, right, so they're running a fever, they have purulent sputum, they think they've had a significant increase in their sputum production, or if they're requiring positive pressure ventilation, we should be giving these patients antibiotics, right? Usually we're talking about azithromycin in an outpatient setting because it does cause some smooth muscle relaxation, which can help with bronchodilation. Um, but with our patient population, we probably need to add another antibiotic on top of azithro if they have a focal infiltrate on chest x-ray. Levaquin is also another popular choice, both for inpatient and outpatient. Um, if they're staying in the hospital, we need to draw blood cultures prior to giving them antibiotics. The hospitals, the hospitalists like it, even if the blood cultures essentially never grow anything, right? So this is one of those things we forget to order a lot because they don't appear septic and we don't think blood cultures are going to help, but the hospitalists really like it. So if we're giving IV antibiotics and admitting them, please remind us to order blood cultures because we technically should. Okay, so we've placed our, placed our patient on supplemental oxygen. We're giving him all of the albuterol and some ipratropium, getting steroids. He's plus or minus getting magnesium or antibiotics, right? He's doing better. He's still on four liters, but he can speak in near complete sentences. He only has some scattered faint wheezing, but is in general moving air better. Um, so in general, if the onset was pretty sudden and severe and the patient has severe underlying disease, has an increased oxygen demand, hypercarbia or hypercapnia, uh, multiple medical problems that kind of complicate his diagnosis, or they just can't handle their symptoms at home for whatever social reasons are going on, then we're going to admit these patients, right? If we can get them basically back to baseline and they can go several hours without requiring rescue treatment, 
then they can go home with a five-day steroid burst plus or minus antibiotics and close follow-up, and that's completely acceptable, okay? All right, recap. Respiratory distress is essentially all treated the same. ABCs, two large bore IVs, and a cardiac monitor. Keep the differential diagnosis broad, at least initially, right? Focus on oxygenation and ventilation, targeting appropriate oxygen sats, right? We're not aiming for 100% in anybody. And in COPD, that's bad and toxic and leads to worsening outcomes and worsening hypercapnia. So in COPD years, 88 to 93. Draw labs, consider chest x-rays, EKGs, and basically anybody that's in severe respiratory distress, right? And there are obviously exceptions to this, but for the most part, that's what we're going to want. Um, once the diagnosis becomes more obvious, the treatment for reactive airway disease consists of five things. Oxygenation and ventilation, bronchodilators, steroids, magnesium, and potentially antibiotics. The older and sicker the patient is at baseline, and the more severe the exacerbation, the more likely they are going to be staying the night at hotel benefits. All right. Thanks for listening. And if there's any pulmonary topics you guys want to talk about, let myself or Kara know. Um, next month, we're going to be doing cardiac stuff and March we'll be doing neuro stuff. So if you guys have any suggestions or thoughts on topics for, for those months, please let me know. And I can try to make that the podcast that we do that month. Um, all right. On that note, happy new year. And here's to hoping 2022 sucks less than this past year and specifically from a respiratory distress standpoint. All right. See you guys.